I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when, uh, when, when sometimes the, the longest introductions are those where people begin by saying, this person needs no introduction. Have you ever noticed that? And then they go on to tell you all the books they've written and the things they've done and the places and whatever. And you're thinking, if he doesn't need any introduction, then don't give him one. Well, when we come to the book of Judges, it does need an introduction. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a book that needs to be uh, introduced rightly. Uh, among other things, as I, as I looked at my favorite websites and uh, I looked at what my favorite preacher uh, friends or acquaintances had done, I found virtually nothing. I think John Piper has two messages on, on Judges, and, and uh, Ray Steadman has one uh, message that covers the whole book in one sweep. Nobody seems to want to land there and spend much time. And, and I, can, I, can, uh, I can understand and identify with that. And it's, uh, I think most often when I've talked to other people and they learned that my next study was going to be in the book of Judges, in one way or another, they all basically responded the same way. And that is, why are we doing that? Why study the book of Judges? And so that's going to be my topic for uh, today as we introduce this study. And I'd like to do that uh, by beginning with some introductory things that we need to know about the book of Judges that will help us deal with it and better understand it. And then I want to, I want to look at the reasons why we should be studying the book of Judges, but in a sort of a backwards way. I want to take the excuses that I think most of us would offer for avoiding a study of the, of the book of Judges and, and, and debunk those and demonstrate that just the opposite is true, that our excuses for staying away from Judges are really not valid excuses and we ought to be giving serious thought to that. So what are the things that we need to know about the book of Judges. Well, the first thing I've suggested is that judges don't really judge in that sense. When, when you think about judges, you have a picture in your mind. Years ago, there was a, a fellow, a seminary student, Frank Hendricks, who, who had uh, several children. And I remember one of his children had come to faith and he wanted to be baptized, but he was terrified. And his dad said, why? It wasn't the water. Uh, it, it, I wore one of those robes, and, and, and he, he, he said, the judge, the judge. He was scared of the judge up there. He was going to put him down under that water because he wasn't sure whether the judge was going to let him back up. But when you think about judges, you think about Exodus chapter 18, where Jethro observes that Moses is worn out because he cannot keep pace with the demands of the nation Israel when it came to disputes and issues over the interpretation of the law. Moses was passing judgment for the people, but he was just worn out. There were too many of them. And so judges were appointed, and the, 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 the process of making judgments was distributed downward uh, to other men in addition to Moses. Those were judges. And you see that same a story told in Deuteronomy chapter 1. I suppose the closest we come 
to that kind of judge in the book of Judges would be uh, Deborah, who is said to be a prophetess and that she judged Israel. But that's not really the norm. That's not what we find. The judges of the book of Judges are not sitting at the judgment seat with judge robes on. They are uh, something different than that. Oftentimes, they were uh, they had some administrative uh, function uh, that that took place. They were certainly leaders and whatever, and and there may have even been some function with regard to the law of God, because our text says that when God gave them judges, they did not listen to their judges, which seems to relate to us that they were doing more than just doing battle. But in the final analysis, judges in the book of Judges are generally military leaders. Would you not agree? They are those who lead the Israelites into battle. Oftentimes, in cases like Samson, they're the one who start the battle. And the irony with Samson is he doesn't lead the Israelites in battle. The Israelites don't want to go to war. He just does it himself. So he goes out with the jawbone of an ass. He kills a thousand of the Philistines. So he's kind of the one-man army, the army of one. But judges were military leaders that brought about the defeat of the enemy so that Israel could live in peace from their oppression. No judge really ruled as king, although Gideon was offered that opportunity. You remember, late in his life, they wanted him to be a king, and they actually wanted him to start a dynasty so that his sons could rule as well. Because you, you could not predict who the next judge was going to be. God raised them up when there was a time of need. A dynasty, you know exactly who the next heir to the throne will be. You also need to know that, that the book of Judges really focuses on the tribes of Israel. More individually, I think, than collectively. The term the sons of Israel will be used. But when you look in the early chapters and you see that when the question is raised, who will go up first for us? It says Judah will go up. Now, Judah's long since dead as an individual. The tribe of Judah is there, however. Simeon will go with him. It's the tribe of Simeon. So when you see these references, you're seeing references to tribal groups and, and, uh, and the, the way in which God used them in, in doing battle. You will also notice that, that things, or we should keep in mind, that things are not necessarily sequential, nor are they chronological uh, necessarily. And, and so this is often true in, in Old Testament times and even in New Testament times. The author is not nearly as interested in a sequence of events just by time, but the arrangement may come in other ways. So you can't just take the judges and add up the years of, of these judges and say, okay, those years all added up equal this period of reign. It may be that some of these things are taking place in a certain territory and with certain tribes, and so it's possible that you may have more than one judge actually functioning at one point in time. So you just need to keep that in mind because it is very tribal. The book of Joshua is different in that regard. Joshua is leading the whole nation into battle. 
And the impression that we get, at least, is that he goes in with the whole nation and fights strategic battles in gaining territory in these strategic places. And now it is the task of the individual tribes to go and take possession of that which has been granted to them by God. That's why the tribal element, I think, is there. Judges fills the gap, maybe this is obvious to you, but it fills the gap between Joshua and 1 Samuel. And it really, it really does that. But remember that when you look at the events that take place in, in the, uh, in the law, you look at the leadership of Moses over the nation, the entire nation Israel. When you look at Joshua, you see Joshua is a leader over the entire nation. So you have one strong leader over the entire nation. When you look at Judges, you don't have that kind of leadership taking place, and Judges are raised up, but not necessarily over the entire nation, but maybe over a particular area. Then you come to 1 Samuel, And there will be the time when people say, we want a king like all of the nations have. And now you have the consolidation of the nation Israel and of the tribes of Israel under one king, at least for a period of time, uh, under David and then Solomon. You have the consolidation of all those tribes under one leader. But in between is this period of the judges where that is not the case. And and so... There's something unique about this, and and I think that's where we need to take note. Every book makes a unique contribution to the canon of Scripture. And so when we come to Judges, we have to say, what is the unique contribution of the book of Judges to the entire message of the Bible? It is the only book that depicts what God is doing in the midst of his people at a time when you don't have a Moses, you don't have a Joshua, and you don't have a David or a Solomon. But you have this period of time when there is no king in Israel. And uh, that, I think, is the key to its uniqueness. It's also a factor in the book of Esther. If you do not take into account that Esther is written at a time when the Israelites are supposed to return to the promised land, rebuild Jerusalem, retake the land, and live in it, then you miss the fact that the book of Esther is about Israel's disobedience, about some Israelites' disobedience, staying in Babylon and not returning to the land. That sets the tone for the entire book, and it begins to give you a key to its unique contribution. Only Esther describes Israel in unbelief and disobedience at that moment in time. So this is a, a unique period for the book of Judges and for the nation of Israel. It is a backdrop for the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth begins by telling us that these events are taking place in the period of the judges. You've got to admit, and the reason why people aren't too excited about judges is because it's all downhill. I mean, it starts on a kind of a gentle slope, and boy, it snowballs, and by the end, it is just disaster. Well, nobody really gets a kick out of reading about disaster too much. But when you look in the midst of this dark time, when every man is doing what's right in their own eyes, and when they are disregarding the law of God, here is a man, Boaz, 
who not only does the law, he loves the law. And in the midst of all of the garbage that's described in the book of Judges, here is this beautiful pearl of, of a man who loves God and keeps his word. I should tell you, too, that so far as I understand the book of Judges, we're looking at something politically that looks kind of like the Confederation of States. Now, I'm not a huge historian at all, uh, but I had to take some history in conjunction with political science. And I do remember this. In the history of our nation, we began with a confederation of states. That's where all of the states wanted to retain their own sovereignty. And so the only thing that they would do together as a nation was the thing that every one of them agreed was for their benefit. Now, I don't want to get off into politics, and all of us now know that that we've seen this thing flop the other way, and now it's the big uncle up there who's telling all of us what to do, and we're not so sure we like that. But there was a point in in our nation's history where it became evident that you can't have all of these states going their own separate ways and have any unity uh, that, that was necessary at that time without something that was stronger. The, the tribes of Israel were like that. They were sort of each doing their own thing, going their own way, and they were not really solidly united as they had been under Moses and Joshua or as they will be under David and, and, and Solomon. There's this kind of independent, autonomous uh, function that's going on that I call a confederation of the tribes. Let's talk about the keys to the uh, book of uh, Judges. I think one of them is the text that Bob read to us this morning from Judges chapter 2. It describes this cycle of Israel's disregard for God and his word, for the discipline that God brings through the, uh, the, uh, uh, the surrounding nations and the oppression that comes. They cry out to God for help. He sends a judge. And for the lifetime of that judge, the, the, the area uh, somehow now lives in peace and, and security and prosperity only to revert and to go downhill faster the next time after that judge has passed away. And another key would be that expression, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what is right in his own eyes. When you look at the book of Deuteronomy, what doing right in your own eyes means is living according to your own sense of right and wrong, living by your own standards rather than by the law of God. Doing what is right in God's eyes is living in accordance with God's word. Doing what's right in your eyes is living in disregard for God's uh, word. And it was related to that fact of Israel not having a king. So there is a sense in which as we read this book, what do we say to ourselves when you get to the end? Man, does Israel need a king? Well, they get one, Saul. And then they get David and we get all excited. But you know everything begins to crumble and fall apart. And it's not just any king that Israel needs. It is the king that Israel needs. And of course, he has come once and he will come again. Now, what are the things uh, that we're thinking wrongly about that lead us to conclude or to excuse ourselves from studying the book of Judges? What are, what are our best shots 
at, at somehow sidestepping judges and moving to uh, some other um, uh, text. Well, one, here's one objection. Too much sex and violence. I have to smile to myself because I, I was, uh, Craig Nelson and I were in India and we were teaching in Madras. I can't even remember. Is it Chennai now? I can't remember what they called it. Anyway, we were teaching there in, in, in the church. And we happened to be working in Genesis from about 35 on, where you had all this thing about Rachel and Leah and, and uh, Genesis 37 with, uh, with uh, Mrs. Potiphar and, you know, just on and on. And this man came up to us and says, There's just too much sex. Just too much sex. And, and I hadn't really thought about it, but it was there, and you couldn't really teach those chapters without doing it. And and the mother of one of the fellows that used to attend uh, our church was there, and she said to us, go ahead and teach it. I've talked to his wife, and he needs to hear it, she says. And... You know, the subject of sex and the subject of violence is not brought as some kind of centerfold that, that, that's to get our attention when, when things begin to drag. It is a very real part of life, and it is an issue with which we must deal. When you look at television, you want too much sex and too much violence, look at your TV for a moment. Or look at your TV guide, that's probably better. And you'll find all the sex and violence you ever want. And it's, it's almost scary in terms of violence. Not only do you have the, the violent stuff, but now, how many of these programs to, are, are, are done in the context of an autopsy? So you get to actually look at that part of the body and then thinking, ugh, good grief. It makes Proverbs look pale. And, and it makes judges look pale. Well, I said Proverbs, that was a Freudian slip, but I'll tell you why it was. Proverbs is a book that is written ultimately for the benefit of children. It is very possible that some parent may come along and say, I don't want my child hearing about that. Now, I understand that, and trust me, there are things that young children do not need to hear too early, although they're hearing a lot of things earlier than you think they are. But it's interesting to me that the book of Proverbs, which is given to us for child training, has a lot to say about sex and about violence. And if the Bible tells us these are things our children ought to hear about, then they ought to hear about them. And there's no better place to hear about them than the Word of God. And there's no better person to tell them about that than the parents. That's what Proverbs is, is saying to us. So, yes, there is sex and violence. But frankly, that's one of the things that makes this book pertinent and relevant to our day and time. There's too much of it today as well. Second one I call the Sunday School Syndrome. Uh, I've heard it all before. I don't know what to do about this, but, but it's really true. And, and, and with our children and now with our grandchildren, I, we have these Bible story books to read. And I frankly don't like the watered-down version of the Bible stories. And, and, and if you look, for instance, at some of the stories where you've got the Samson story and, and, and you've got Gideon and, and whatever, do you notice how it's just sort of dumbed down? And, and the story is told totally out of historical context. 
In other words, when it's given to us in the book of Judges, the story is given to make a point. I have yet to see that point ever emphasized in a Sunday school storybook. it'll, It'll make a point, but it's not the historical point that you find in the text. And what happens then is we get, at least in in some congregations, you get our children growing up and you talk about Samson. It's like, oh, man, I've heard that so many times. You know, David and Goliath. You know, these are all stories that that, that we're dull to their message because we've heard them, but we've heard them in a watered-down, simplistic way. No, I think what it says to us is that our, our, our children as they grow and we adults need to hear the story in the context in which it is given. That is, you won't understand Samson unless you understand it in the context of the book of Judges and that period of time. That's why we ought to be studying Judges. Judges is irrelevant to me and my life. Well, that sounds like a... Uh, at least uh, a reasonable thing to say. I mean, look how long ago it was and, and, and the things that are taking place there. You might have, uh, at the drop of a hat think that it's not really that which we need. It is a different time and it is a different culture. Some would take dispensationalism and say, well, this is the new covenant and, and that's the days of the old covenant. The old has passed away, and now we've got the new. So let's just forget the old and think about the new. But the old covenant and the Old Testament is a part of the unfolding story of redemption. What's been discovered, especially amongst pagan tribes, is you cannot go to those tribes and tell them the gospel beginning in in the New Testament gospels. You have to start in Genesis and hear how God created the heavens and the earth. You have to start from Genesis to see how man sinned and is an adversarial relationship with God and how that's impacted relationships and so on. You have to see how God laid down laws and commandments and God's people disregarded those. And how there was a need for a savior. There was a need for a sacrifice. And Old Testament sacrifices weren't going to do it because you offered them over and over again. They never did the job once for all. So unless you understand the foundations of the gospel, you really don't understand the gospel as you should. So it's not irrelevant to us. Graham Scroggy had a book called The Unfolding Drama of Redemption, and that's what it is. And it's time for us to understand some of those early phases of God's saving plan. Here's one I hadn't thought about until uh, we were up in Washington uh, and my dad had had his stroke. We bought a book that was called The, the Brain That Changes Itself. It's a book about the plasticity of the brain and how certain portions of the brain can take over functions from other portions of the brain. And when you're thinking about strokes, that's that's very encouraging stuff. But here's what this fellow said. He said, the problem with most of us is by the time we reach the age of 40, we stop learning. The brain is not only assimilating data as some kind of a, a file storage system. 
but the brain is actually adapting itself as new data comes in in, in, in a marvelous, I, I would say in a miraculous way. And he said what, what people need to do is, is they need to be learning more. They need to press themselves on. And yet when people reach their 40s, they stop. And so what he's saying is what you need to learn another language. You need to step outside of your time and culture and you need to move into another. It's a growing, stretching exercise. And I thought about judges. The very things that make judges foreign to us are the things that are going to get our brain cells going because we're going to say to ourselves, I don't understand that at all. Good. Maybe you'll learn. Maybe your brain will actually begin to expand and grow. That's a good thing for us, I think, to do, a healthy thing. The similarities between judges and today are remarkable. I'll come back to that. But, but I have to tell you, it is not as foreign to us as you think. Violence, sex, sin, disregard for God's word, living according to your own standards as opposed to living to those which God has set forth in his word. That's not just them there. That is us now. And therefore, we have something to learn from them. Well, I've held off on this, but I have to say the scriptures are very clear. If we don't believe the Old Testament is relevant, then we don't believe the New Testament. Because God says that all Scripture is inspired and is profitable for doctrine, instruction, correction. All of those things, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is profitable. If we didn't need it, it wouldn't be there. But it is there because we do need it. It is profitable to us, and we need to explore the ways in which that is, is true. The Bible says that the Old Testament contains those things which are shadows of the things to come. It was pre preparatory for us to see the things that God would have for us in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Here's one that I don't know whether you've thought about or not, but I'm, I'm going to toss it out. Judges is politically incorrect. Well, it is in a lot of ways. If you read, for instance, about the treatment of women, you, you, uh, you're going to discover that, that, uh, that Judges is, is looking at things from a very different perspective than, than our culture would today. But I'm thinking in particular about uh, jihad. I'm thinking about our uneasiness. If you, if, if, if you haven't heard it, I believe I have maybe a number of times, where the argument is made, here are Christians talking about the evil of, of jihad that, that says that, that Islam and, and believers in Islam, that they ought to kill those who are infidels, those people who don't believe in Muhammad. Uh, and then they turn us back to the Old Testament and say, well, why are you guys judgmental? Look at your own history. I mean, isn't this a kind of Christian jihad? When you look in the book of Judges, the Israelites are condemned because they didn't totally annihilate the Canaanites. Now, that is what it says. So you've got a real issue before yourself on that. And let me just say a few things, and, and then maybe as we go on in our study, we'll find some more. Number one, the Old Testament 
never commanded for all non-Israelites to be killed. The Old Testament was very specific. Canaanites were to die. Now, there were specific uh, uh, subgroups of Canaanites that would fall in that category. But remember, the Canaanites who were dwelling in the land, they were to be exterminated. Not just them, but babies, uh, animals, every portion of the Canaanite culture was to be eradicated. That was because that culture was so corrupt there wasn't anything redeemable in it. Now, when you talk about the tribes that were, or the peoples that were at a greater distance, they were those who could be defeated in battle. You could take the, the widows uh, as a wife, uh, and you could have some kind of relationship with them. You weren't obliged to kill them. So, jihad says kill everybody that doesn't believe as, as we do. Christianity, uh, the Old Testament, did not require that. You have to look in terms of dispensations as well. And you have to say the Old Testament was a theocracy. God was working through his people to bring judgment upon a sinful people that was now ripe for judgment. Just as he had brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he used his people as an instrument of his wrath. In the New Testament, you discover that it is government that is to be the instrument by which God brings about the punishment of wicked people. So Christians don't have to go about in some vigilante way bringing about justice. Government has been given that responsibility. And in particular, I think you have to say, how Christianity seeks to make converts is very different from how Islam seeks to make converts. Islam says to people, believe or die. Christianity is saying Jesus died, and thus you should believe. And it's being said by people who are willing to lay down their lives and shed their blood so that those who are lost can be saved. An entirely different uh, perspective. Finally, even when there is no application directly to the precept, there may well be a principle we are not to go around killing unbelievers. hope we've all got that straight. But what we should see as we look at judges is that when you try and, and cohabitate, as it were, and dwell amongst and begin to, to assimilate the flesh and that which is contrary to God, it is a downward step. And so in this sense... We ought to be merciless. We ought to be merciless. May I say, we ought to kill sin. Mortify the flesh. Isn't that right? Paul says, I die daily. Jesus says, if your eye causes you, right eye causes you to stumble, what do you do? You don't put glasses on it, folks. You tear it out. That's the kind of attitude that we ought to have toward sin and in particular the sins of our culture. We should hate it, and we should not try to adjust to it. Last point on this. Judges is merely ancient history. I, I, this is, I guess this is the passion point for me, because I've been thinking about this for, for quite a while, about history. And I would have to say, when I think about some of the older members of our body or people who have been members of our body, there were a number of history buffs. 
I don't think our generation is producing history buffs at all. Because I think we have a different view of history. What I'm suggesting to you is judges is important as history. Now, it's divine history. It's inspired history. But I think we live in a day when history is being disregarded and it is under attack. Let me suggest some ways. Psychology. Now, this is not all psychology, but it was a fair bit of it, and especially in certain days. Psychology, or some versions of it, would, would make history my expedition into the past in order to pin the blame on somebody else. Isn't that right? You go back into the past and you look at this and you say, well, I'm the way I am because my father did this, my mother did that, or didn't do this or that. And, and, and so history now becomes the turf for justifying my sin. Rather than me seeing history and saying, how does it expose my sin? We look at history and we find an excuse for my sin. That's an attack on history. Now, psychology was just warming up on that. An ideology comes along and says, that's not bad. I mean, do you realize we live in a day where there are people who seriously deny the existence and the reality of the Holocaust? Serious people are denying history. Why? Because history is now the mechanism that I can use to rewrite the past to justify my ideological sins. And I can make history validate my error. That's a frightening thing, and it's happening, and sometimes it's happening in the, in the top uh, educational institutions in our land. Science and technology. When you have you ever been at a used bookstore, and and you let's just say that you you uh, you are um, getting a book and it's on the first IBM PC. I had one, 4.77 megahertz. That was the speed of the processor. Now mine has 3.16 gigahertz. A lot faster. I don't go to the used bookstore and say. Man, can I find a book on the IBM PC? In fact, I see computers over which I used to slobber. And, and, and I, for five bucks at a garage sale. And I laugh. And I walk away. Why? Because they're old. And because technology has moved beyond. Why would I be interested in reading a, a medical textbook on using a bugs to bleed out a body? When we say to ourselves, that's old, that's inferior, the new stuff is so much better. Well, that kind of thinking has a way of working its way into theology as well. And it's what I call evolutionary thinking. If, if you say to yourself, every day in every way, man is becoming better and better. If you buy that premise, now, that certainly flies in the face of judges that says every generation is getting worse and worse. <laughs> Doesn't sound quite right, does it? But if you buy that premise, then you would say to yourself, why would I possibly go back and see how Israelites behaved in the days of the judges when we've progressed so far? And now we're just, we're just higher and higher. Why look back at the past? If you believe the Bible that God has not changed and man has not changed, 
Now history has something to teach us, and we ought to pay heed to it. Well, Christianity has its own ways of doing that. One way, it's not necessarily true of dispensationalism. It is true of some. And that is, they'll simply say, that's the old and it doesn't have any value. How many men who preach today preach from an Old Testament book? Well, not many. Not many. And certainly we, want to, we don't want to dwell there always. But why don't we teach the Old Testament? Because we really don't believe it's worthwhile. We've got a problem with even religious history. So what do the scriptures say that we should gain from history? Well, we're reminded of the past. <laughs> Deuteronomy, those first chapters of Deuteronomy, they're all a review of history. Are they not? Remember how it happened. Remember how God led you out of slavery. Remember what happened. In our text, it says there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for them. They apparently didn't know history. And their history was a generation old. One generation. And they've lost their history. That to me is a sad thing. We're warned about sin. First Corinthians chapter 10 goes back to the days of the Israelites. And, and what does Paul say? It says that they rose up to eat and drink and play. And he says that same set of temptations exists today in Corinth. And we need to learn from the Old Testament and be warned about sin. We're taught about our sin and God's faithfulness. We're taught that God's word is reliable. When you look at this, I was looking at verse 15 in our text. When, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken. When we read Old Testament history, we find that what God says, God does. Isn't that exciting to know as we read history that it happens just exactly as God said it would. You look at Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus chapter 26, where it says, if you obey me, here are the blessings. If you disobey me, here are the consequences. Judges is the consequences. It's spelled out. God's word is true. We're exhorted, warned, instructed, equipped. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. We see the excellence of the gospel and the superiority of Christ. What does the book of Hebrews do? It takes the old and it says to us, this was good, but it's a shadow of what was to come. It takes the old and says, look at this now in terms of what has come in Christ, how much better it is. That comparison is valuable. The Old Testament was necessary for the argument of Hebrews. We're given hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Listen to this. Everything that was written in former times was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we may have hope. How is it that the Old Testament gives us hope? How is it that a book that's just about as bad as it can get, I was tempted to say originally, it is as bad as it can get. It isn't. Because in the days of Israel's kings, cannibalism will be added to the list of sins. It's not here in Judges. But it comes. But if you look at history, if you look at man as bad as he can get, 
What do you learn about God? You learn that God is faithful to his word. When men cry out to God in their desperate times for his salvation, he saves. He saves. He sent judges to save. Now, I'm going to truncate this and and leave my conclusion uh, uh, right here. But that is to say, that's what Judges is about. Judges is to encourage us that God uses some of the grimiest people to achieve his purposes. Even the enemy. It says God raised up these people to bring oppression to his people. Why? To discipline them and make them cry out to him. If you're someone here this morning and you're saying as a Christian, I have made such a mess of my life. God just can't use me. Maybe you ought to read about Samson or some of these other turkeys here who are not exactly model citizens. God can use broken people. And if you're here as an unbeliever, God saves broken people. This book is about God being faithful to his promise to save people who are desperately in bondage. Our bondage may be to, uh, to, to sex, it may be to drugs, it may be to who knows, and we all call those addictions. But people may be in bondage here this morning. Liberty comes in Jesus, and the great judge and the great deliverer is Jesus. He came as the perfect God-man. He gave himself to die for us, so that we might participate, as they said this morning, in his victory. That's the message. As bad as it gets, God saves and God delivers. He can deliver you this morning, and he can use you. Father, thank you for this text. We pray that you would guide us as we study the book of Judges. Help us to see who we are, and help us to see who you are. Help us to rely upon you and not ourselves. Guide us, we pray. May you bring glory to yourself in this study. In Jesus' name, amen.